according to a study done at Princeton University, $89,000 a year is the price of happiness. Economists Angus Deaton and psychologist Daniel Kaufman from the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs reported that the lower a person's annual income falls below that metric, the unhappier he or she feels. But no matter how much more they make, people don't report any greater degree of happiness. Now, before you think that your unhappiness or your happiness, your source of happiness, is tied to that number, $89,000 a year, you should know that Town & Country Magazine ran a similar article two years ago. The article basically said, in order for someone to have a completely free and unfettered life of absolute luxury, joy, comfort, and ease, the net worth begins at the $50 million mark. But there's more. Those who have reached those dizzying heights of wealth it reported that they did not experience the satisfaction, the fulfillment, and joy they anticipated. Why? Well, psychologists find out. They call it because of something known as the billionaire buzzkill. That's right. These multimillionaires no longer feel like they've conquered the world and have arrived because the presence of billionaires reminds them of how little they have in comparison. So here's an important question we have to ask ourselves after hearing that. How much money will it take for you to be happy? John Rockefeller, once the richest man in America, was asked that exact same question. How much money does it take for a man to be happy? Rockefeller replied, just a little more. Robert Kenny, director of the Boston College Center on Wealth and Philanthropy, said it best. The most important thing for everyone to understand is that no matter how much money you have, you cannot buy yourself out of the human condition. And that is, we are all going to die. People think, Man, if I make $89,000 a year, then I will be happy. And the people who make $89,000 a year think, man, if I had a net worth of $50 million, then I'd be happy. And the people with a net worth of $50 million say, if I had a net worth of $1 billion, I would be happy. And on and on it goes, the ever-receding horizon of joy. Now, Money can be one factor of happiness in an overall flourishing life. After all, it's better to have money than not to have money. It's easier to live with money than to live without money. But in a consumer culture like our own, money oftentimes is the only factor. And that kind of mistake leads to all kinds of problems in our lives. And it's not just the mistake we make. People have been making that mistake as long as any of us can remember. People have always made money their ultimate hope, their prized treasure, their functional savior. And if they did it in first century Ephesus, you know we can be doing it in 21st century Orange County. So as we conclude 1 Timothy and we roll into chapter 6, have you noticed how much Paul is talking about money? And it's not surprising that there seems to be a direct link between faithlessness in the gospel and an idolatry to money. So as he wraps up these words to his young protege, Timothy, he has kind of four perspectives that he wants Timothy to understand, and they're good for us to understand. 
The first one is this. When it comes to money, we need to remember that there are two ages, the temporary now and the permanent then. There are two realities, the uncertainty of riches versus the certainty of God. And then there are two strategies. We can call them investment strategies, maybe. Investing in greed versus investing in glory. And the way we live in the tension of all these things is by obeying the one clear command in this passage, and that is that we guard the gospel. So let's begin where Paul does in verse 17. He says, as for the rich of this present age. Now, let's stop there. We know one thing from looking at those uh, surveys I just mentioned a few minutes ago, that wealth is relative. From the perspective of verse 8, where Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I am the rich of this present age. I have more than food and clothing. When people in uh, my neighborhood in La Habra found out that Lori and I were moving down to South Orange County, but I was going to be pastoring a church in Laguna Hills, many of them said, wow, must be nice to be moving up, right? With the implication that South Orange County has more money than we did, certainly in La Habra or North Orange County. Several years ago, when I was teaching at a pastor's conference in Nairobi, Kenya, the fact that I was from the U.S. made everyone believe automatically that I was rich. So by these three metrics... I am the rich of this present age. I live in the United States, I live in South Orange County, and I have more than food and clothing. By that standard, all of you listening this morning are considered the rich of this present age. But at the same time, we all know that there's the rich of this present age, and then there's the rich of this present age, isn't there? A couple of weeks ago, I dropped my son off for his shift over at Trader Joe's down at Newport Coast, um, and the expression, the rich of this present age, takes on a whole new meaning. So I dropped him off, and driving through the parking lot, my 2005 Mazda MPV, passing by four brand new shiny Lamborghinis before I even got out of the parking lot. So the question is, is Paul talking about them, or is he talking about you and me? The rich of this present age Is it those people or is it us? Well, here's the answer to that question. If you have ever felt that your income level or material success has brought you a sense of security, then you are the rich of this present age that Paul's referring to. If you've ever felt protective of your material goods or that somehow you are entitled to them because somehow you've earned it, then you are the rich of this present age. Now, I want to be really clear, just to be really clear, that there is a very real sense that Paul is referring to those who who are materially much more well-off than the average individual. But you would be mistaken if you don't think you are the rich of this present age just because you simply want more. Okay, I want to be clear about that. Because as we learn from those surveys, the hunger for more money, for material goods, for success It's an insatiable appetite. So while Paul is talking about people who we all would consider are very, very wealthy, it also includes us as well. Contrast the words in our passage. That word uh, in verse 17, haughty, with the word in verse 18, generosity, and you'll see the point. Haughtiness is this sense of a kind of self 
focus, right? And it puts up rankings and barriers to maintain their particular status. And, and we have these things in our culture today, right? You got first class, premium class, gold star status, right? It's about maintaining distinctions because some are better or more elite than others. By contrast, the word generosity is others' focus, and it's about taking down barriers and rankings that separate us. It's about bringing us together. The one is the impulse of this present age. The other is the impulse of the age to come. We see that there in the text, there in uh, verse 19, a foundation for the future, right? If you want to take hold of what is truly life, Paul asks, verse 19, then it's not in riches at least not in the riches we think about, as much as it is being rich in good works. See that in verse 18. Jesus asks in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The implication is, friends, that no amount of temporary worldly wealth can compare to an eternity of permanent spiritual poverty. If we're going to relate to our wealth differently, then we have to remember the when of our wealth as much as the amount of our wealth. Let me say that again clearly. If we're going to relate to our money, to our wealth differently, we have to remember the when of our wealth, not just the amount of it. You may be rich now, but will you be rich then is the real question. And to reinforce the point, let's look at two stark contrasts that Paul makes. He writes, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So, here's the logic. Riches, money, the kind of goods of this world, money is not a, 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 a proper foundation for one's hope because they are uncertain. Money is uncertain because it is the things of this age, right? So, so, money is not a proper foundation for your hope because they're uncertain. They're uncertain because they belong to this age. Proverbs 23 verse 4 says this, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. About a year or so ago, uh, Max, uh, Max is our junior high director, came into staff meeting, and Max was just excited, man. He was holding his smartphone. The guy was just all smiles, and so we had to ask him, say, Max, what, what's going on? What's, what's, the, what's with the bright smile? And Max had just got into investing, and he turns his far, smartphone around to us. He says, well, I just started investing, and in three days, I tripled my investment. I mean, that green graph was just going straight up. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, he's not going to be working here much longer because we can't compete with, with that kind of income. Well, a week later, he comes in the staff meeting, and he's definitely not smiling. Something's wrong. Max, what's going on? In one week's time, Max had lost all the gain he had made and a quarter of his original investment. Money grows wings and flies away. Years ago, when, when I got into the stock market, I'm not against the stock market, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me, but when I was just getting into the stock market, it was the late 90s, a friend of mine, and I remember it distinctly because of his very apt metaphor, he said, 
Rick, a blind monkey could make money in the market right now. You've got to get in. So I put in two th- all that I had saved, $2,000, I put it into the stock market. Keep in mind, this is the late 1990s. As soon as I put my money into the market, the dot-com bubble burst, and I lost every penny. A few years after that, we had Y2K. A little bit after that, we had 9-11. A few years after that, we had the 2008 mortgage meltdown. A few years after that, we have the 2020 global pandemic, the uncertainty of riches. It's just a metaphor for the uncertainty of this age that we live in. Paul says the contrast to hoping in uncertain riches is to hope in God. Why? Listen to, listen to Paul's his logic here. The contrast to trusting in uncertain riches is to hope in God. Why? Because He provides richly. Look at the verse. Look at there in verse 17. Don't, don't, don't hope in uncertain riches. Hope in God. Why? Because He provides richly. What does He provide? It says right here, everything. What's the purpose of everything? To enjoy. Notice the logic there. Don't hope in uncertain riches. Hope in God. Why? Because He provides. How does He provide? He provides richly. What does He provide? Everything. Why does He provide it? For your enjoyment. Friends, this is so contrary to our natural inclination and the way we think about God. We think riches leads to joy, and God is a cosmic buzzkill. But the reality is, God leads to joy and riches are often a source of true disappointment. Friends, notice the the return on this investment here. Verse 18 is the investment. Do good, and he explains what that means, to be rich in good works. And he, he gets even more specific of what kind of good works he's talking about. To be generous and ready to share. So you see that pattern. Paul says, this is, this is the investment you make. Do good. Not just in a general way. Do good and be, be rich in good works. Not just the quality, but quantity of the good works. Specifically in being generous and sharing. That's the investment. Look at verse 19 is the return. Storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Notice, in God's economy, being generous does not equal uh, losing your wealth, just, just giving it away and there's no return. Rather, it means, according to verse 19, laying it away in heaven and by doing so, establishing a foundation you can build on for the future, not just the future as in a temporal future, but an eternal future. You see, the Christian life is, is not against riches. I'm just be really clear about that. The Christian life, the Christian worldview is not against riches. It is against false riches. It is against feudal riches. It is against temporary riches. Let's know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust um, destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, notice what Jesus is saying here, right? Be very clear on what Jesus is saying here. Number one, 
Everyone seeks for treasure. Jesus is just assuming that in his argument. Everyone seeks treasure. And of course, it can be a, a financial kinds of treasure, but we can broaden it out. Everyone's seeking something of value. Everyone's seeking something that will, will give them security. Everyone seeks for treasure. Friends, what's your treasure? What are you seeking? Really important. Jesus assumes everyone's seeking for a treasure. And the reason this is so important, the reason I'm stressing it is, as we hear in Matthew 6, your treasure, whatever it is, if it's finances, if it's status, if it's reputation, if it's comfort, if it's security, if it's your family, whatever it is, notice what Jesus says, your treasure will control your heart, right? Your treasure will control your heart, and what controls your heart will control your behavior. So, Jesus is speaking in Matthew 6. He's not saying treasures are wrong and don't, you know, uh, 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 abstain from them, get rid of them. He assumes that everyone's seeking for treasure, and the reason it's so important that He wants to make sure that you have the right kind of treasure is because your treasure will control your heart, and whatever controls your heart, guess what? It's going to control the way you live. So, the Christian worldview is not against treasures. It's against false, vain, temporary treasures that won't actually make you rich in the richest sense of the word. Friends, if you keep putting your hope in uncertain riches, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what kind of life you're going to lead, what kind of life you're going to have. Keeping with the financial uh, metaphor, when the, when the market goes up, you're fine. When the market crashes, you're down. It's up and down, up and down, the uncertainty of riches. But if you really really want to get the thrust of the biblical message here, in verse 17, all you have to do is replace the word riches with anything you might be tempted to hope in more than Jesus Christ. Replace the word riches with anything you might be tempted to love more than Jesus. It could be health. It can be approval. It can be very abstract concepts like medical science is going to find a cure for COVID-19. It can be a college acceptance. It can be job security. It can be youth. It can be beauty. Whatever it is that you are tempted to hope in more than Jesus Christ, whatever it is you're tempted to value, to love, more than your Lord. That, that's the, the thrust of this passage. Whatever you might be tempted to put your hope in, you name it, and all you have to do, it, 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 I'm a people watcher, so I, this is, maybe this comes more naturally to me, but all you have to do if you have the eyes to see it is look around at the lives around you and see how uncertain those hopes really are. Name any one of those. Wealth, health, youth, beauty, all those things are uncertain. So, backing up, question one, when are you rich? Now or then? Now, to be clear, it can be both. It can be both. These are not mutually exclusive. But in order for that to happen, you do have to be deliberate and intentional with how you will live. Which reality will shape your life? The uncertainty of riches of this age or the certainty of God. Finally, how will you invest your riches, your treasures, the things that you find valuable in keeping with Paul's intention here? How will you invest the financial riches of your life? Will they be in yourself, in greed, in more materialism, or will they be in glory, where there will be an eternal return on that investment? 
Friends, the heartbeat of our passage really is verse 18. I've alluded to that. Paul says, they are to do good, those who are rich in this present age, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. By the way, notice how often Paul is using uh, kind of a play on words, rich, right? The rich in this age, God gives to you richly. They should be rich in good works. Be generous. There's this, this theme coming through it. But notice in verse 19, we cannot cannot outgive God, who, who actually is incentivizing our generosity by giving us even more. We see that in verse 19. As if being able to be a blessing to others wasn't enough, as if having more for ourselves and even extra to give away wasn't enough, God incentivizes by saying, hey, when you give away, the return on that investment will go on into eternity. Keep your finger in, in 1 Timothy and go with me to a parable in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16, it's the parable of the rich fool. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Uh, Let's just modernize that. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store all the money, the windfall I made in my portfolio, my stocks, my bonds. It's It's been a wonderful, is it a bull market? Yes. I know what I will do. I'll buy more homes, homes here, a summer home there, a winter home there, places to store my car, my artwork, my stuff. Verse 19, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Friends, what a, what a contrast to the way the heavenly man or woman chooses to live their life. Some of you know the name uh, William Wilberforce. His life was made famous by the 2006 feature film Amazing Grace. Wilberforce was a, a British uh, parliamentarian, a British politician, who, who almost single-handedly led the, the abolition movement to end the slave trade in the British Empire. Wilberforce gave away 25% of his income every year, roughly $200,000 by today's standards. In the uh, British Library over in London, uh, his diaries are available for you on, on permission to read. I'd like to read to you just some entries in William Wilberforce's private diary. Notice how intentional he was with the people he knew. So here's just a few things he has written in his diary. S and Mrs. What good books are they reading? Give them some good ones. The J's call on them and sound them out on religion. Give them money to give away. Give them little presents. Lord and Lady James, see them. Get them through their hardship. Discover what books they are reading. Granted, and on and on it goes. Mundane, right? Mundane kinds of entries, but intentional. 
deliberate, thoughtful, Jesus-driven. Wilberforce and his friends, they were known, they're known to history, and there's books about, written about them called the Clapham Six. Uh, that's because there were six of them. They all attended the same church in, in, in London, Holy Trinity and Clapham Commons. They had devoted their lives to end the slave trade, but that's just the most well-known of their accomplishments. Here's a list of the other, other charitable societies and things that they pioneered when they made the decision not to invest in their own greed and continue to expand their wealth, but in God's glory and His care and plans for His people. Here's a list of the things they did. They founded an asylum for the deaf and dumb. They began charity schools in Ireland. They provided for the relief of the poor in the city of London. They launched education initiatives in Africa. They founded an orphanage for girls in London. They founded the London Missionary Society. They founded the Religious Tract Society. They founded the Society for Promoting the Religious Instruction of Youth. They founded the British National Endeavor for the Orphans of Soldiers and Sailors, the Sunday School Union, the British and Foreign Bible Society, and the wonderfully named Friendly Female Society for the Relief of Poor, Infirmed, Aged Widows, and Younger Women of Good Character Who Have Seen Better Days. And the list goes on, and the list goes on. Friends, never underestimate one life devoted to invest, not in their own selves, not in what they can gain, but in glory and what God can do with whatever little they bring to the table. Now, obviously, most of us are, are, are not able to give away $200,000 a year, let alone 25% of our income, but the numbers aren't the point. The point is the strategy. The point is the intention the deliberateness by which they made these decisions. What will you invest in? The temporary now or the permanent then? In the uncertainty of riches and the uncertainty of this world or the certainty of God and the uncertainty of the life to come? Will you invest in greed or glory? Now, you know what the answer is, or at least you know what the answer should be, but the question is, how do we do that? And Paul supplies the answer here in verse 20, back in 1 Timothy, with the, with the one clear charge, the one clear command here in verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, remember the one who did everything I am asking of you. Remember Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Friends, Paul says to guard this truth of the gospel. Well, you don't guard something you don't already have. But when we let this truth slip from our minds, when we let this reality be eclipsed by other things, we find ourselves chasing after things of, of lesser value, thinking they have value. Friends, why would we want to vainly pursue money and success when they will never satisfy when you have someone who left true riches for you. So you could have those true riches even as it caused him poverty. 
Why would you ever continue to chase a receding horizon when the sun himself constantly chases after you? Why would you exchange the certain love of God made secure because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the uncertain hope of temporary fleeting riches that grow wings and fly away? Friends, when, you, when, you, when we truly realize the riches we have in Christ, we, we, we don't despise the wealth of this world, but neither do we find that we need it anymore. As a matter of fact, when you realize the true riches you have in Christ, one of the best things happens to you, you realize you're not bound by wealth and the riches of this world anymore. You don't need it. It doesn't matter whether you have it or not because you know you have the riches that really matter in the end. And that is the riches we have in the inheritance of Christ that comes to us from the gospel. Let's pray that we can be faithful to Christ and faithful to His gospel so that we can be faithful to all the things Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus so long ago that have still application to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the, the wonderful words of 1 Timothy the wonderful truths that this amazing short epistle taught us. Lord, as Paul has spent so much time in this last chapter talking about the, the dangers of wealth, Father, we don't want to fear wealth. We want to fear our desires that make wealth a God. Father, we want to fear our inborn tendency to make everything in the creation a God and run from You, Lord. We want to fear that more than anything. Father, thank You for the rich of this present age that, that, that genuinely would be considered rich by our standards, but all of us as well, that we would steward the wealth you've given to us in a way that brings you honor and does your people good. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.